apologies for those of you at home and even here. We started late. We had a live stream issue, so the guys were faithfully trying to fix it before we started church and eventually decided to start. So we are starting church late. We started church about 15, 20 minutes late today. So at 12 o'clock, we will not be done. You're looking at your watches thinking that I went long when we started late. Whenever you are giving any kind of speech, whenever you are writing something to communicate to people, there is a certain way that you want to present your material. In fact, what when you present an idea is almost as important as the idea itself. Even in things like humor, if a joke doesn't land right, the timing has to be right for it to be funny. Well, in any kind of public presentation, whether it's a, a sermon or a political speech or some kind of work presentation, when you present particular facts are as important as the facts themselves, and whenever you are trying to make some form of an argument, some kind of cohesive point, where you place your information is important because you want to have the most impact. Well, today I have to present some information outside of when I initially wanted to, and you'll understand why in just a moment. I initially had this information towards the end of the sermon, but we'll now begin the sermon with this information, and I'll explain why in just a second. Last week, we started a series about drifting from maturity. The series is called Happy Anniversary because it's been two years since COVID rocked our worlds and changed our lives. And many of us, all of us, in some way, shape, or form, had to adjust our lives and included the way we worship God was adjusted. We went from being in person to watching online. But in that period, that two-year period, habits and patterns began to form. God is exposing to his people in particular areas of concern. And so as we have seen this, have talked to many of you in the church, we thought it was important to take some time and address what we think are issues that are affecting us primarily, but also just have affected other Christians just across the country. So we started a series called Happy Anniversary, but the focus is, and one of the things that we think has happened to all of us to varying degrees, is that the, the, the habits and patterns of COVID, the things that happened as a result of not being around people, having to watch stuff on a screen all the time and not relating to people, have created psychological and theological impacts on all of us. And now we have to figure out how to work through those, but we will not work through those if we pretend like they don't exist. And so I want to present some information out of the order of my original plan for this sermon, and you'll see why in just a second. 
We've been live streaming for just about two years, just as COVID started. I just want to present some, some analytics or just stats about live streaming from our church, our church only. On any given Sunday, we have about 30 unique viewers or families live streaming. This has been trending down the last few months. In January, it was 60 to 70 unique IP addresses. So less than half now are watching sermons online. People are not in viewing the entire service. Many people are logging on after worship to watch only the sermon. The majority of people log off before prayer and communion. Let me give you a practical example of last Sunday when we started this series. Last Sunday, half of the viewers watching from home logged off by 11 a.m. We don't even finish church until 12 or 12 after. I was personally just getting warmed up in the service. See, some of you who don't do public speaking know it's a rhythm to public speaking. You know. It's a rhythm. You get in a rhythm. You might start off a little way and by the end you're feeling good, but by that time, half the people had already logged off. By 12 p.m., more than 70% of the people had logged off, and we finished last week at 12.15. The average watch time is 40 minutes. Spoiler alert. I've never preached a 40-minute sermon in my life. <laughs> to the glory of God, though. Amen. Most services run two hours. And most sermons are around an hour or a little over that. That means that a good portion of people that are at home, or some of you that are just coming back, may have been not even engaging fully online to the one time a week where you gather to hear the word of God. Fascinating. Now, this might be a result of, this could be the psychological impact of COVID. Zoom fatigue, I remember, I said this as a joke one time. I was like, man, I got Zoom fatigue. I'm just tired of Zoom meetings, meeting with people on Zoom, leading one another meetings on Zoom, going to Zoom on D group, going to Zoom meetings about Zoom. I just wanted to Zoom away from Zoom for a long Zooming time. <laughs> so I was joking, and then I realized, oh, no. Psychology Today and other Psychological um, websites point this as a legitimate reality. Zoom fatigue. Here's the psychological impact that they describe. These are the experts, not my work. Talking about watching Zoom, like they say, of course it's not just heavy-duty, commercial-grade screen time that is undermining our mental health. The power of a pandemic is to raise our fear and paralyze us in our tracks. The invisible monster under the bed, the nagging, Fear that you get when you hear a sound late at night that you can't place. Those are the ways in which fear of the unknown enemy typically shows up in our lives. 
not as not an incurable virus that is racing across the country that we can't stop, nor are we able to arm ourselves against the vaccine until a vaccine or treatment became effective. When this type of anxiety becomes a part of your daily life, you may not realize just how stressed or tense you become until something happens to trigger an uncharacteristic response. Maybe you snap at your partner when she struggles or when she suggests taking the dog for a walk around the neighborhood right after you've read another terror-fueling news story. Or maybe you get overly harsh with your child when they start begging again to have a friend over, but you've just heard about another case or a death in your community and your own fear level is through the roof. While it's important to temper our interactions with others, manage the ways in which we express our emotions, and remember to be kind, it's normal to experience whatever emotions are bubbling up during this unprecedented time. So when you're on your sixth Zoom or Teams or Skype meeting of the day, or you're hanging out with friends for a virtual dance party or with colleagues for a virtual happy hour, you are likely to, some of y'all seem like y'all had a couple virtual <laughs> happy hours around here. I mean, you are likely to feel a kind of exhaustion from that screen time that is unlike the exhaustion you feel from an hour at the gym. Even extroverts can feel worn down by the high-intensity virtual connection. Part of the craziness now is that our homes are now our workplaces, and our screens are our sole connection to folks beyond our households. This can make us feel like living headshots, since all we can do now is project our identity as a thumbnail image of our faces. Not only does Zoom zap our energy in our brains, but it also beats down our bodies from a numb butt, I can relate, <laughs> to an aching back, to a dull, throbbing headache and eye strain, hours spent in one position at furniture never designed for long-term sitting can leave us feeling cranky, achy, and a lot worse about life than if we had had to break down or roam over to visit face-to-face -face chats and just gossip with coworkers. I hope we ain't doing that. An evening commute during which we decompress and shed our work identities as we morph into social and relational identities. That's just a small portion of Zoom fatigue is really, maybe that's what's happening. I know there are times I've experienced that. So I want to say two things on the outset. Because if statistics are correct, then half of the people watching at home are going to log off shortly. Funny, but not funny. So let me make two things clear before you log off, if that's you. <laughs> Number one, maturity is not God, it's God's design. It's not Kurt's concern. This is not what we're wanting you to do. Maturity is God's design. There are no apostles named Curtis, and there's no gospel or letter written by me. It's God's design. 2 Corinthians 13, 9 through 11 says this. We rejoice when we are weak and you are strong. We also pray that you become fully mature. This is why I'm writing these things while absent, so that while I'm, while I'm here, I may not have to deal with it harshly with you. 
in keeping with the authority the Lord gave me for building up and for not tearing down. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Become mature. Be encouraged. Be of the same mind. Be at peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. So here from God's perspective, two words. Become mature. This is not my concern. It's God's design for his people. Ephesians 4, 11 through 14 says this. And he himself, speaking of the Lord, God, he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of God's son growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning, with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. So here's God's concern. I want you to be mature because if you're not, you're going to believe a lot of stuff that's not from me, and it's going to lead you to drift even further away, ultimately away from me. Maturity is God's design, not Kurt and Mike's concern. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 12, here's what Paul says. Not that I have already rejected the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because also, because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching toward what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. So here he's saying, look, mature thinking is to live for Christ and to make every effort to do the things that demonstrate we live for Christ. You know the reason why? Because he's preparing us for a time where there won't be distractions. Heaven is not going to be where we're all distracted. There are no introverts and extroverts in heaven. There are believers worshiping Jesus. There are no Enneagram 8s or Enneagram 3s. They're believers that worship Jesus. There are no distractions. There's no alone time. There's no personal space. It's his space, his face, his grace, and we're all there. So he's preparing us for that right now. But if we don't think like that, if we don't live that way, then we're not even going to be prepared to go to eternity. There's no cell phones in eternity. There's no Facebook. There's his face. Look. <laughs> Sometimes when you rap, things just happen. I don't mean to do that. I'm sorry. It just happened. I'm freestyling sometimes. I can't help it. Y'all can use that one. Don't quote me. I'll be, I'll be at Smiley's on Tuesday at 7 and 
first thing, we're not, maturity is God's design. It's not my concern, ultimately. The second thing is I'm not making a distinction between those who are at home and those who are at church. That's not what this is. The concern for maturity is not only the people that are still watching online, hopefully. It's for all of us because we've all been affected. I'm not talking to everyone that's not here. I'm talking to anyone who can hear. This is for real. Jesus dying on the cross is for real. The expectations and the responsibilities of maturity are for real. And that's why we're doing this series, because the concern is, based on what God's design is, is that many of us have drifted from biblical maturity to personal security. I want to feel safe more than I want to be godly. I want to feel comfortable more than I want to be convicted. The concern is that the psychological impact of COVID has created a theological impact as well. So last week we looked at two things, drifting, and we looked at the fear of death. And that for the believer, death is not something to fear. For as we saw, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Again, the Bible doesn't expect us to have a death wish, but it does wish that we put death in its proper perspective for those of us who do believe. Today we're going to look at a scene that is overly familiar. In fact, this is a scene in Exodus 32. This is one of the stories that is almost bigger than the Bible itself. There's certain stories that transcend the Bible, stories like David and Goliath, stories like the Good Samaritan. These are stories that are used or spoken of that have no real connection for some people to the Bible. They're just stories that have become a part of the lexicon of our society. But we're going to look at this story a little bit differently because I think the way that this story has often been described is missing something. I don't think it's actually exactly what's happening. So let me give you a brief outline of Exodus so you know where we are. In Exodus 12 is when God comes and tells the Israelites after the plagues of Egypt, he tells them to put blood on your doorposts and the angel the angel is going to come over you, and he's going to kill all of the firstborn, not just in Egypt, but anywhere that doesn't have that blood's protection. In Exodus 14, all of those Israelites leave Egypt, and they cross the Red Sea. In Exodus 15, after watching God bring the waters back on all the Egyptians and destroy them, they sing a worship song in obedience and gratitude to the Lord, much like we did this, this, this morning. In chapter 16, after complaining that the Lord is not giving them, in fact, they use the term, they say, man, we missed the meat pots back in Egypt. <laughs> in other words, man, I'd rather go back and be a slave and eat good than struggle in the wilderness but be free. So God provides manna, bread like from heaven, like, think of it like funnel cakes <laughs> with a nice powder on them. That was manna. No strawberries, <laughs> but that was manna. And then he provided quail, meat. 
Exodus 17, they're complaining. They're thirsty. So Moses taps a rock and water comes out of a rock. In Exodus 20, they get the Ten Commandments. And they stand before Mount Sinai and see the thunder and the lightning. And they get the Ten Commandments. Moses goes up to speak with God. And then in Exodus 32, it doesn't say how much time has passed. We don't know how many days. But Moses, I think, was up there 40 days. So it's sometime in the span of 40 days. Here's what happens in Exodus 32. The six verses this morning. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us who will go before us, because this, this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That's ironic, because they do know what happened to him. They're just thinking like, man, he ain't coming back down. So Aaron replied to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the, on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, fashioned it with a graving tool, and made it into an image of a calf. Then they said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it and made an announcement. There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. Early the next morning, they arose and offered burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. Now this passage is rightly called idolatry. This is the chief passage on idolatry in the Bible. This is the one. Idolatry is often defined as loving something more than God or other than God. So you can have your phone can be an idol, your children can be an idol, your job can be an idol. That's typically the definition that is used. Another definition that is really popular about idolatry is worshiping a false god. They're worshiping a god that's not God. Popular, common, most people would agree with these definitions. In the New Testament, idolatry is actually called greed. Greed. So here's Colossians 3.5. Here's what he says. Therefore, Put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. So greed or covetousness is what is called idolatry. That's a little bit different definition. In Exodus 32, the chief passage of idolatry to which these descriptions find their root, particularly Loving something more than God or other than God and worshiping a false God, I don't think that's actually what's happening here. I don't think that's what's happening here. So we're going to make two main observations with some points in between. Here's the first observation. They asked for God. They did. Verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, They gathered around Aaron and said to him, come, make us gods for who will go before us. Because this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So they asked for gods. It's like, well, Carl, I thought you just said that they didn't worship another god. Let's look at two reasons why they asked for gods. 
are in this verse. Two reasons. The first, Moses was gone. Moses was gone. Let's go to Exodus 20, verses 18 through 21. Here's what happened. Here's why Moses is gone. Let's remember this. All the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the ram's horn, and the mountain surrounded by smoke. When the people saw, that, saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. You speak to us, and we will listen, they said to Moses. But don't let God speak to us, or we will die. Moses responded to the people, don't be afraid, for God has come to test you so that you will fear him and will not sin. And the people remained standing at a distance as Moses approached the total darkness where God was. So they asked for God's why? Because Moses was gone. And they actually, they're the ones that told Moses to go on their behalf. They told Moses, hey, listen, modern day language, nah, fam. There's no way I'm going over there. That's terrifying. They were terrified at the holiness of God. They were uncomfortable with the way that God presented himself. So they asked Moses to go. He took too long. And so they said, let's make gods. Another reason why they asked for gods is because they wanted something from God. Look again in verse 1. Come, make gods for us who will go before us. Do you notice they don't say, come, make gods that we can worship? They don't even mention worship. What do they say? Come, make gods who will go before us. The language of go before us, it means to protect us or provide for us. In Exodus 13, 21, here's what it says the Lord did. The Lord went ahead of them. He went before them, depending on your translation. He went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to lead them on their way during the day and a pillar of fire during the night so that they could travel by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night never left its place in front of the people. So they're saying, go make gods that will go before us, that will go ahead of us, that will protect us, lead us. In Exodus 23, 20, God says this, I'm going to send an angel before you to protect you on the way and bring, it to, bring you to the place that I have prepared. So here, God is sending an angel before them. So they're saying, go make gods that will protect us. They don't say anything about worship yet. Go make gods to do something for us. So the primary concern was not worshiping a god the primary concern was God doing something for them. The logic is, we want God to protect us, and then we'll worship. So if there's a God that they're worshiping other than Jesus, the first God is themselves. They care about their protection. Hey, make gods that will go before us. It will do something for us, and we'll worship. This is self-worship. They want God to do something for them or God to do something for them, even though he's already done something for them. This is a different form of legalism. This is called legalism. 
Legalism is trying to earn God's favor by your works. Legalism is God has to earn your works by his favor. And this is what they're doing. Make gods who will protect them. They've already been protected. One of the ways we drift from biblical maturity is we want God to give us assurances. We want certainties that don't require faith. Biblical maturity is supplanted by personal security. These people wanted personal security. Make gods that will do something for them. But that still doesn't get at the real issue. I said they weren't worshiping another god. Let me show you why I say that. Beginning in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods. Make gods for us who will go before us. This Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron replied to them, Take off the gold rings that are on your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings that were on their ears, brought them to Aaron. He took the, he took the gold from them, fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made it into an image of a calf. Then they said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Wait a minute, I thought you just said, Pastor Kurt, that they're not worshiping other gods. Verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it and made an announcement. There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. So here's a question. Why are they building an altar and having a festival to the Lord, all caps, not like, good day, my Lord, but like the Lord, right? All caps, Yahweh. Why are they building a festival to the Lord if they are worshiping another God? Why would they build an altar and have a festival to the Lord if they are worshiping another God? First of all, where did they even get the idea for a festival from in the first place? In Exodus 5, this is God having appeared to Moses, and he tells him, I want you to go to Pharaoh. Exodus 5, 1 and 2. And so Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, and here's what the scripture says. Later, Moses and Aaron went in and said to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh responded, who is the Lord that I should obey him by letting them go, letting Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. In Exodus 10, after the plague of locusts, here's what it says, beginning in verse 7. Pharaoh's officials asked them, how long must you be, this man be a snare to us? Let the men go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Don't you realize that Egypt is devastated? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Go, worship the Lord your God, Pharaoh says. But exactly who will be going? Moses replied, we will go with our young and with our old. We will go with our sons and with our daughters, with our flocks and with our herds, because we must hold the Lord's festival. In Exodus 12, before the Passover scene, where the angel of death went through and killed the firstborn. God says this, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. 
the blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day is to be a memorial for you, and you must celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. You are to celebrate it throughout your generations as a permanent statue. So they're worshiping other gods. They seem to be doing what God says. This idea of a festival comes from the Lord himself. It's not something that came from a polyistic understanding of Egyptian gods. So in their minds, they are worshiping the Lord. If they are not worshiping the Lord, then why do they say this in Exodus 32, 6? Early the next morning they arose, offered burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. They sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. Well, how would they know to offer burnt and fellowship offerings? Is that what Egypt did to worship their gods? Exodus 20, 24 says this, make an earthen altar for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your fellowship offerings, your flocks and herds. I will come to you and bless you in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. The identical offering that Israel is saying let's do after making what people say, what most say is a, a, a representation of believing in other gods, the exact offering that they are doing, an altar and offerings have come from the Lord himself. So they do not think they are worshiping another god because they are doing everything he said do only. These ideas were not a figment of their imagination. They are applying everything that the Lord said do to this golden calf, even calling it the Lord. So what does that have to do with us today, with drifting from maturity, from COVID, Why are we talking about this in light of what we're talking about today? The Israelites did not make a calf to rival God. They made a calf to be a representation of God. They recreated an image of God that they were comfortable with. It wasn't the God of creation. It was a God that was created. It was a way to create God that they are comfortable with. In Exodus 20, God said this clearly. The Lord then told Moses, this is what you ought to say to the Israelites. You have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make gods of silver to rival me. Do not make gods of gold for yourselves. They were clearly doing what God said didn't do, not to do. 
But in their mind, they're doing it in worship of the Lord. So what does that have to do with us? I think many of us have recreated God in an image that is more comfortable and convenient for us because of our fear of dying, our distance from others, and habits and patterns got created where now we have our own golden calf. It's not a throne. It's not this. It's the comfort and security of worshiping God in a way that has little sacrifice for us. When you make God in an image that you're comfortable with, you've already redefined obedience to him. So the next step is to redefine obedience to him. It becomes easy. Now, all of us don't fashion a golden calf, literally, but we come up with ideas about who God is and what God expects and what we're willing to do or not to do based on the circumstances that he's actually sovereign over. And all of a sudden, without even, and this isn't even intentional, I think this gradually happens. But mind you, COVID exposed this, but this is not a COVID issue. This is not a COVID issue. There may be habits and patterns and expectations that came out of having to rightly social distance and not be around each other. They recreated a God that was both comfortable and convenient for them. And my concern is that many of us have too. Now, many of us are familiar with this story. How many times have you asked this question? Why did they make a calf? Why did they make a calf? Like they said, we make gods that will go before us, gods that will protect us. And so we make a calf. Why didn't they make a big kind of dragon-like creature like one of the Egyptian gods? Maybe even a horse, a big horse. You could say, well, they ain't have enough gold. I you know, could say that. A little ghetto out there in the wilderness. I don't think so. Because they were given so much gold by the Egyptians, they had enough to build a temple. So why with all of that gold, you could make this monstrosity of a God that's with strength and protection, and this is the God that you're going to say brought you out of the land of Egypt, this little calf, a calf is a young bull, a young goat. They're so cute. If you're one of those type of people, my wife is one of those people that every small thing is so cute. I know some people do it all the time. Oh, it's so cute. It could be a little demon. Oh, my gosh, look at how... Why did they make a calf? Well, let's go back to the scene again at Mount Sinai in Exodus 20. Verse 18, it says, all the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the ram's horn, and the mountain surrounded by smoke. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. You speak to us, and we will listen, they said to Moses. Hey, let's keep it 100, right? I would have said the same thing if I was there. I'd have been like, man, I ain't. Kurt, the Lord wants you. Hey, can he go instead of me? Like, I'd have said my back hurts or something. I'd have been like, Moses, I, don't, I can't speak. 
But he says, but don't let God speak to us or we will die. So that's their vision of God. That's the God that saved them, but they create a calf, a God that can do nothing to protect them. But in their minds, this God is less intimidating. It's more comfortable. It's convenient. They don't have to fear him because he's so cute. This image of God is not going to speak with a thundering voice. It doesn't have the same command. It doesn't intimidate them. It's comfortable. And it's convenient. I mean, we created a God right here. We don't even have to go to Mount Sinai anymore. We can just stay right here. Build a little altar and let's just do the sacrifice, the offerings that he said, and let's keep it moving. We can stay right here. God has come to us. We don't have to go back to that scary mountain. We don't have to go back to the God that intimidates us, that makes us uncomfortable, that challenges us. That Moses said, the Lord is testing me. I'm concerned that some of us, maybe many, have recreated God in an obedience to God that's comfortable and convenient even though he's already saved you. Like if you're a genuine Christian in this room, then the greatest act of salvation that you need was not from COVID. It was from death and judgment of God. He's already saved you. He already saved Israel from Egypt. They watched him destroy. You all have watched the grace of God in your life change your life and change the lives of people around you. Many of you believe that if you die, you're going to spend eternity with God. Why? Because of the greatest, he's already saved you. But now there's this, I think there's a recreation of God that serves a maturity that we're comfortable with. Sometimes a functional God that we serve is us. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that I, I'm not concerned for most of us that we're walking away from the faith. But that we're walking away from what it means to be faithful. It's slow and it's subtle. And if you're offended now, I ask you the question, why are you offended? The way I said it, okay, even if I didn't say it the greatest, is it true of you? If you're offended, I ask you to have this posture that the disciples did when Jesus said, one of you will betray me. They didn't say, it's probably them, Lord. I don't like the way you said it, Lord. I don't know if I trust you, Lord. How could you say that about us, Lord? They said, is it me? So the question to ask this morning is not, did you like the way he said that? Did you agree with him? Ask, is it me, Lord? When we are comfortable with God, it, it breeds a certain familiarity. You all have heard this phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. When you're too comfortable with a person, you can get offended by them. They even did this with Jesus. One time Jesus was like, oh, you're offended by this? He said, do you want to see the Son of Man go up to heaven and, and leave this place? You get contempt towards God. Then you think, well, 
why is God saying that? Or it'll start with, it doesn't start with God, it starts with, I won't agree with that, I disagree with that. I said, okay, that's fine. Anyone can read, I, I constantly question and say, listen, I could be wrong. Be a believer, open your Bible, search it, look for yourself, and if I'm wrong, present an error. And, and I'll stand in front of everyone and say I was wrong. But I don't present things at least unless I have some biblical evidence for it. I think we have grown to a point where we are, where grace is not as amazing as it is annoying. Let's, let's make this practical. Let's make this practical. And you tell me, question, is it me, Lord? Make this practical. All right, there are 168 hours in a week, seven days, 168 hours. Five hours are required of most of you by your church. So two and a half hours on Sunday, two and a half hours on Wednesday or whenever you're DVBing. Okay, that's five hours are required. We're asking you as a member of the church to be a part of the life of the church, to come to church and then be in the D group. Okay, that's 3.04% of your time in a week. You got 50-hour work week. Some don't work that long, but we'll, we'll be generous. 50-hour work week. Some work longer than that, give or take. We'll average 50 hours a week. Now that's 55 hours of your week. You have another 56 hours. This is assuming that everyone gets a, a clean eight hours of sleep. I ain't had a clean eight hours of sleep since I was a kid. <laughs> Anybody that has kids, they had to clean eight hours of sleep. I got to be on medication, and I might get six. So that's now 111 hours of 168 for church, work, and sleep. Remember, with church, attendance, and D group being 3.04% of your time. Let's just say you spend 35 hours a week with your family. Okay? That's a lot of hours. 35 hours a week with your family. All right? That's 146 of 168 hours of work, church, sleep, and family. So you have uh, 24 hours a week to do everything else. Mind you, church is only five hours a week. That rarely ever changes. If you serve in worship like these guys do weekly, you bump up to five and a half to six percent of your week particularly if you drive and commute to the church or if you serve in a particular ministry. But for the most of us, five hours a week is a requirement. So let's just say in the Zoom meeting, you don't go to a Zoom meeting or you turn it on, you don't show your face, so you're doing anything. And many people have said, yeah, man, I just didn't even participate sometimes. I had it on, but they were cooking, doing work, it was background, all of that stuff. Let's just say all of that stuff is legitimate. So then that 3.04% goes down. If you're at home and you watch part of the sermon or not, that goes down. Which would make your percentage less than 3% a week. So with 24 hours extra a week, with 3% for most of us, some, some of us less, given to the Lord in terms of by the church, what are you doing with all that other time? And how much of it is connected to your growth and maturity. It's a, it's, it's, I think it would be a hard 
And this may be the case. It may be you don't like what we're doing or what we say, and so you don't tune in, but you spend time with the Lord. But why do that? Why do that? Many of us, if we did what we did with church on our jobs, we'd be fired. Your job would not tolerate these crickets. If you're offended at me, that's fine. But ask, why? Are you offended? I'm just presenting statistics. I haven't said anyone's name or anything. I'm not thinking of anyone. I'm looking at statistics. I've applied this to myself. Like, wow. I don't think of my life that way. What am I doing with 20? And this is assuming that all these numbers are accurate. For some of us, you don't spend 35 hours a week with your family. You have far more time than 24 hours a week. Some of you spend less than 3% of time connected to the church at least. How much of that time is going towards your journey? How much of it is going towards preparing you to go to heaven? Forget what I'm saying. Just go by what the Bible says. How much of that goes to that? Is it meaningless? If you're more offended than the way I said it, then I think it is meaningless. Is it meaningful? Am I really taking my maturity that you, God, and gave me seriously? Or is this legalism to you because I'm presenting the status? Does anyone honestly, truly believe that the Lord requires less than five hours of a week of you to be a Christian? Does anyone honestly believe that? That the Lord is requiring less than 3% of your time every week? We don't think we're asking you to too much to come on Sunday. If you say, well, yeah, but I watch online, but the numbers are indicating that not many are now. When COVID started, those numbers were super high. Now, we do get more people online during the, during the biblical counseling training. Sweet. Grateful. But this is the only time people hear the message. This is the only time a real claim is made on our lives every week. are drifting away from the conviction that maturity is essential. It's not optional. And the concern is that we may be worshiping a God of comfort, not a God of conviction. Because conviction hurts. It bothers us. And if I said something in a way that sounded self-righteous or judgmental, I apologize. But as your pastor, I care about you, and I am concerned. And sometimes you don't always say everything in the most nicest way, but some people have ears that only want to hear things a certain way. And I cannot do that. Because there's too many types of people. There's too many levels of sensitivity. And so at some point, in some way, I'm going to offend someone. But the question is, why are you 
you a friend who isn't angry? Why aren't you concerned like, wow. COVID did real damage in one respect. It exposed a lot of our fears, expectations. It exposed a lot of our view of God, what expectations we have of God, what we think God should or will do, what we think God is okay with. But my concern, and it's not just mine, there are others in this church that would share that concern. I had a group of people in my house last night, and we all were like, well, we were talking about this. Have to be honest and evaluate the psychological impact and the theological impact of the last two years in our lives. And we have to ask, is it me? Do I care as much? And if you think it's the church, then we respect that. Find a place where you will grow in the Lord. We're not offended. I care more about you than I do you being here if that's what you need to do. But you have to mature in the Lord. It's not optional. It's not solid rock that's asking you to do it. It's the solid rock. Over the last few months, particularly the last eight months, I've heard questions like this come up. Why do we need to physically come to church? I've tried to explain in different ways why and different things like that. But my answer from here on out, so probably no one's going to ask me this anymore, here's my answer from here on out when someone asks me that. Why do we physically need to come to church before COVID? Because no one was asking for live stream. No one was asking to do Zoom. I mean, I've been using Skype since like 08 or something. You know what I'm saying? That joint is busted now, right? No if you use Skype now, it's like using AOL online or something, right? You're still like in the, the instant chat rooms on America Online, right? But like all these video dynamics have been in existence long before COVID and no one was asking, can we do church that way? We all understood as Christians have since Jesus ascended that we gather together. And when there is some circumstances that don't allow us, there's grace for that. If we're being honest, this is the first time since COVID started that we're actually saying these types of things, that you need to be back in church. We have been mainly hands-off because we wanted to understand. But then as we start talking to people, seeing people drift, we're looking at the numbers, we're like, wait a minute, what's the benefit of being at home? Now, that doesn't mean every single person, obviously it's average. So if the average is 40 minutes, and some people are doing more than that, but some people are doing less than that. This isn't about watch my sermons. I'm not that great of a preacher. This is about are you being fed something more than what you're comfortable with? Who's feeding your soul? How are you growing in maturity? What are you doing with all that time that you have in the week? Especially if you're spending less than 3% of your time with us. How do we ask questions like, why do we physically need to come to church when we've always understood it's what we do to gather together? No wonder, I'm going to 
who cares about watching me for an hour preach? That's why you probably turn it off. <laughs> what makes this church special is not me in this pulpit or Mike in this pulpit. It's the people who are sitting right here in the pews. It's the conversations that you have, the fellowship that you can have after church. Last Sunday, I had someone come up to me and just share some stuff with me that I did not know about. We talked for 30 minutes. And I was like, wow. I did not know this. I would have never had that conversation had I not been here. But now some people are offended that we're asking you to come back to church as if like everybody's dying daily. The fear for most of us, for most of us, is gone. Now it's about the fear of losing a comfortability. For most of us. I didn't get an email, so I forgot about the meeting. We meet every week. <laughs> Man, I wish some of you would do that on your job. Hey, where were you at the staff? Uh, this, uh, the program manager's meeting. Oh, I didn't get an email. I forgot. I'd be like, okay, all right. <laughs> the next time, <laughs> write up. If you're, if you're, there are people who are managers here. If you got employees that consistently be like, my fault, boss, I, I just wasn't in the mood to watch, or, well, I forgot, I forgot we had the meeting today. You would be like, guess what? I forgot it was payday today. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? There's some people here that managers be like, oh, okay, all right. All right, you can miss a meeting or two. Okay, cool. There's grace for that. You, you, you know, we're both Christians. Oh, okay. Well, then pray that God gives you grace to increase the numbers on your paycheck because this is what you're getting paid. Many of us would not do in the world what you do in your church. You would not complain against your, the world how you complain against this church. It cannot be me and Mike and the administration all of the time. Sometimes it's you. Sometimes it's just you. You don't feel like watching because you don't feel like it. You don't like this song, so you don't listen to worship. You don't like this. You don't like the way I say You don't like this. Sometimes it's just you. Because this is who God has given you if you're here. And this is who we're going to be if you stay. I hate the app. So what? The app hates you. So what? <laughs> who cares if you hate the app? I don't care if you hate the app. That's what we're using. So like, I hate the app, so I don't use it. Okay. I'm not going to call you and be like, hey, bro, remember there's a meet tonight? No, nah, send it through the app. If you don't use the app because you hate it, the app hates you. <laughs> like, we're, we're grown. And I'm not trying to be condescending. I'm joking because I'm, cause I understand people. I'm not being condescending. I, we all have struggled with this in different ways. But I'm be, if I'm being honest, there are things that I have to tell grown adults that I tell my 14, 13, and 10-year-olds. It's like you're grown. Some of you are more mature than me. What are we doing, church? Really? Why do we have to come back to church? Because it's what God wants for us. If I read the rest of the Zoom fatigue stats, some of you would be like, yeah. Because you will feel disconnected you watch online because it becomes you know what this is preaching is a performance and when I say that I don't mean I'm not believing what I say but it's a performance I'm not always in preaching mode when I step down from this pulpit someone says hey pastor Kirk hey brother this is how I'm doing today I'm I'm the Lord I mean I'm not like that I'm chilling you know 
I don't even want to talk about the term. I'm talking about why the Redskins drafting the people that they drafting. Let's have that conversation. What in the world are we doing? But that's different. I can't. That's not the pulpit stuff. But that's, that stuff spills over. I'm concerned. <laughs> concerned for them too. Daniel Snyder, if you're watching this, you are drifting away from wisdom. <laughs> you are drifting away from wisdom. And you need to sell the team, fam. I love you guys enough to say, I think for many of us, your Christianity is too comfortable right now. And the God you serve is a comfortable one that's convenient that you think doesn't care if you come back because he's all over. He's, he's sovereign. And he's everywhere. Huh? Well, then why do anything because God is sovereign? Why pray? Why share the gospel? I mean, God's. It's like, no, we do these things because this is what this is what we do. We gather together. next week. Mike's going to specifically address that issue. But I love you enough to say, I think for many of us, and I have been included in different ways. The Lord has had to poke and prod me for real. I was bitter. The Lord said, oh, big dog. What is that? What is that? question you should ask is, is it me, Lord? Pointing to yourself. Not to shame you. Not to make you feel bad. Like I said, the the Lord doesn't expose these things and be like, aha, you guys are hypocrites. He's taken into account all the sins that we would do, and he still said, they're mine. But what he doesn't do is say, come as you are. That's not the gospel message. The gospel message is not come as you are. It's come as you are, but don't stay as you came. Maturity is God's design, not Kirk's conformity. And my concern is because I think God has something to say and is exposing this in our church. And I want to see us flourish. As a church and you as a believer, if you feel like this church is no longer your home, we want to see you flourish. I want to see us in eternity and be like, hey, remember that time? In closing, I want to read this. I think this, 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 I think portions of what he says here, not all of it, but I think this is, this is for us from the Lord in Revelation. He says this, he's writing, he's speaking to a specific church in Ephesus, but I believe that this is a word from us, for us. He says, thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. I think many people in this church, you have abandoned the love you had at first. And the works that you would have done before that you never questioned are now irritating and annoying when you get told need to return. And I assure you, no matter how I say it, if it's in your heart, you're going to be a mess. 
My hope is that we are convicted and uncomfortable in our Christianity to some degree so that we obey, so that we're giving God more time. 3.0.4%, it's not a lot of time in your week. And some of us struggle to do that. But we don't have to. Because like I said about the golden calf that they made, God has come to us. Ironically, Jesus, God did come to us, but he did it so that we can come to him. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I, I pray this to you. I prayed before this, this, this sermon, Lord, and you know what I asked you. You know that this isn't, this isn't personal, it's biblical. It's genuine concern, and sometimes it's, you don't always do the best job of presenting your concern, but you do what you have to do. And, and so, Lord, I ask that, where you, that you would convict those that it is them. That when they ask, is it me, Lord? That if it's true of them, that you would say yes, and then you would show them, not to shame them. You don't shame us. You don't need to shame us or punish us because you punished Jesus on the cross. You don't shame your people, but you also don't love your people by acting like we're living like your people when we're not. You love us too much to not warn us in your word, and you love us too much to not to get people around us to remind us, hey, big dog. What about this right here? Father, we make no presumptions. These people belong to you. We make no presumptions, but we love them deeply. Lord, I pray for those who persevere in you, who want to persevere in you. I pray that you would prick their hearts, that they would be affected, convicted, specifically, that they wouldn't just agree with the idea, but would agree specifically. We've all stumble in various ways. Lord, you know, there were times you wanted me to pray for the church, and I watched Netflix four episodes in a row. I'm guilty as charged. But by your grace, you've been showing me, reminding me, leading me that I must prioritize maturity. I must get back to the sacrificial aspect of my Christianity. I don't want to worship a little God that's comfortable for me, that's convenient for me, that I think is okay with the kind of maturity that I'm comfortable with. I want to worship you on your terms so that when I get to the place that you have called your throne, that I'm not uncomfortable. I don't want to be uncomfortable in heaven, Lord, because I was so comfortable on earth. Help us. We need you for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, the Amen. communion was not set out there, so if you need to get communion, please get the uh, elements to do communion. If somebody could grab me one, that would be fantastic. All right. Um, I, there's some in the little alcove. Oh, there's some in the hallway right there, too? Okay. Um, while they do that, uh, we do have a question that's come in. And... Um, the question is, if, as you say, no, Pastor you, Kurt, um, we aren't questioning our salvation, what are the consequences or impact 
of drifting away from faithfulness. So, so when I say I'm not concerned about people walking away from the faith, but I'm concerned about walking away from faithfulness, so let me make sure that you're clear on what I mean. Walking away from faithfulness can lead to walking away from the faith. So it's not like those two are not mutually exclusive. I'm just not concerned that many people are not trying to walk away from Christianity. But having said that, uh, passages like 2 Peter um, 1 9, you know, it says, if you do not make, if you're not growing, basically, I'm, gonna use, I'm paraphrasing, if you're not growing in maturity, then you were so nearsighted that you've been forgotten, you've forgotten that you've been cleansed of your former sins. My concern is if they are habits and patterns of faithfulness, then you will be ineffective and unfruitful for the kingdom. And you will just do enough just to get by. And who wants to stand before God just enough to get by? My concern is that if we don't grow and mature, if we move away from faithfulness, as Ephesians said, we'll be tossed to and fro. And now we'll start believing stuff that's not even biblical. They're, they're colloquialisms. They're, they're little memes on TikTok. Man, there's a lot of meme theology going on out here. We get a lot of our understanding of the world by somebody's meme or a brief TikTok video that's fun. And those things are no, these people don't have no expertise. They're trying to go viral. They're not trying to be wisdom. They care about going viral, not your revival. They don't care about that stuff. So like what we're trying, what I care, I think if you drift away from faithfulness, it will set you up for a whole host of things that could eventually lead to you drifting away from the faith. No one wakes up and says, you know what? I'm not a Christian anymore. I don't know anyone has done that. So while I'm not saying, oh, I think people are walking, I do think there are people among us that think they're in the faith and they're not. I am concerned about that. I do think that that's true. Well, you take so lightly the grace of God that the warnings of God you also take lightly. That's my concern. I think if you walk away drift from faithfulness you can drift from the faith or you will live an ineffective and unfruitful Christian life I tell people this all the time I don't say this to offend I just try to be honest when people say they're leaving the church or this and that I always tell them listen remember wherever you go you're still you you're still you wherever you go you are still you and that's the reality we drift away from the fa- from faithfulness then what kind of christianity are we doing then everything will become a problem loving your neighbor will become a, a severe problem cuz once you drift away from faithfulness then your neighbors become the problem there's so many levels to this and so many levels of concern all right uh thank you so um this uh this last question uh, says, what are some ways or verses we can recite to combat against drifting away from the Lord? Man, how much time we got? I mean, so I, I mean, wow, that's so many. Uh, Colossians 3, the whole chapter of Colossians 3. <laughs> I mean, Ephesians 4. Uh, but if you want to be honest, I think, so listen, here's the thing, right? Why did Jesus warn 
of eternal punishment? Like, why did he warn of those things? Why did he warn of a hardness of heart or not being effective or unfruitful? Like, why did he warn? Because those things happen, right? You read any passage, any passage, the wrath of God is coming for these reasons, Galatians 5. Man, there's so, I, mean, there, I mean, there's just so many passages that, that you could meditate on to help you. But I would just say keep it simple. Start with, like, Colossians 3. Colossians 3 talks about putting off, putting on, who you are. And it's all identity-based, right? I'm not asking non-Christians to act like Christians. I'm asking Christians mm-hmm. to act like Christians. Mm-hmm. So if I'm talking about for people who, who believe, there's a claim that God has on our lives. I'm not asking people who don't believe to somehow do some works because that's not what it's about. Mm-hmm. Christianity is about I obey because of who I am, because of what he's done. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to resist making these golden calves. So I think, so, this, so I just, I'd focus on like Colossians 3. But I think in terms of practical, I think you should look at your week, do the 168 hours and look at your week and ask yourself, if you're one of those people who don't want to come to church or you're offended at this, don't want to go to the Zoom meeting, you won't even show your face, like why? Like, why? 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 Ask yourself, why? Like, Because I'm left to make say why I think. But then I'm wrong. If I say it, then I'm judgmental. But, like, you should judge yourself. Like, why? If you want, to, if you want one verse, if you want one verse to help you uh, remind yourself, do 2 Corinthians 13.5. If you want one verse, just one verse, 2 Corinthians 2 Corinthians 13, 5. One verse. If you want to figure out how do I, what do I meditate on, one verse. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. One more verse. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Those are things that I would do. Think about. The concern is real. Eternity is real. Remember, the spiritual world was created, was, 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 was established first. This world, the material world, came next. So this world is not the real world. The real, the, the realest world is when we die, when we see you. The material world was created as a representation, sort of a type of the real world. God says he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. So he's not destroying the earth. But it's not going to look the way we remember it. Because all the sin will be taken out of the world, all the damage of sin. And there will be nothing but maturity all around. But we persevere to the end. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Good, good, good passage. Good passage. For if we sow to the flesh, we reap destruction. But if we sow to the spirit, we reap eternal life. Let's transition to communion. The reason why we do this each week, and we haven't said it, maybe haven't said it this way before, maybe we have, but communion is a reminder of the responsibility of maturity. Jesus didn't just die so that people could be saved. He died so that people who are saved would live, would live for his glory in this life, We'll suffer, we persevere, we die, and then we live in the next life. Paul said in Romans 8.18, remember we did it about two years ago? (laughs) He said, for I consider that our present suffering is not worth being compared 
for the glory that will be revealed to us. Or some translations say in us. So he's saying what's happening today. Man, now all these verses are coming to my mind like this is Hebrews 11. Man, them people in Hebrews 11, they said they were beaten, sawn in two. The world did not, they said the world was not fit for them. But God was, 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 would love to call them their, his God. Or they, well, you know what I mean. You know what I mean. So I'm in a lot of places right now. Because all these verses are coming to my mind. I'm like, no, don't say that. No, right now. Hebrews 11 is another passage. Look at how these people, look at what they suffered to go through. Because they believed the Lord. A lot of what you're willing to persevere through is what you believe about God. And if your God is too comfortable, then even this, I mean, I wonder how many people haven't even done this in a long time. Anyone can come by and get elements. How many people, I mean, we do this as a reminder of maturity because Jesus, his body was really broken so that we would not be. So we eat this together in gratitude with the responsibility of the, of the growth and maturity because he saved us. Let's eat together. Stale for the glory of God. This waiver has never tasted more nasty than ever, but the reason why we're taking it has never been sweeted enough. This juice, which will take the nastiness out, also represents the blood that takes the nastiness of our sin put on the cross so that we can do this together. Let's drink. Father, we are not here to condemn, but to convict or to allow you at least. You're the one that convicts. We want to allow you a place to convict all of us. Thank you for those of us who have already been responding to the conviction. But we want to be very specific with the maturity that we have. Because we can be very specific with our immaturity. Help us to be as specific with our maturity. I pray this week, Lord, that D groups would have a conversation about how they're doing with a conviction to mature. Help us to just be honest about the, the fear and the desire for personal, personal security that at times has supplanted biblical maturity. Father, you know my heart is not to offend anyone. So where that, is, where that, where that takes place, let us reconcile if that be the case. Lord, if people are offended because they're convicted, then you do that work. And where I'm off, you do the work in me. We all need you. And our taking this communion is a reminder of that. And we thank you, Lord, for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. So don't forget about D groups this week. And don't forget to say hello to the uh, representative here. Any questions you have about the area or things, or please come talk to her up front. Ms. Schumann, she, she'll be available for a little bit afterwards, I imagine. And the rest of you, 
uh, enjoy your week, and I ask you to take seriously the evaluation of how you spend your weeks.